Welcome to the Baseline Community Church Podcast. So, so last Sunday night, Nancy and I were, uh, we were sitting on our couch uh, watching The Chosen. Any, anybody watching The Chosen? It's this really very cool depiction of Jesus. Um, it, Nancy and I are taking that on as one of our practices here in Lent as we're, we're watching The Chosen. Before Lent, we were watching Seinfeld, and um, we were, one of the last times we were watching Seinfeld, we're sitting there on the couch, and Nancy pauses it. She goes, hey, I just realized something about Seinfeld. I go, well, what's that? She goes, you dress just like George Costanza. <laughs> I said, what do you mean I dress like George Costanza? And then I looked at George, and I said, you know what? You're right. Okay. So, um, so we gave up Seinfeld for Lent, and, um, and now we're watching The Chosen. And it's, if you haven't seen it, it's really great. You can, it's on Peacock, a streaming service. You can get it on, there's an app, but I don't really encourage it. It brings Jesus, for me, I love a Jesus that laughs and that jokes around with kids at times. And I mean, it's just, it's great. But anyways, that has nothing to do with my sermon. We're watching The Chosen, and my phone rings, my cell. And it's my sister from San Diego. And she goes, uh, hey, Don, uh, something's wrong with Laura. Uh, Leslie's on the line, and we want to get all of us on a call together. And Laura is my niece, who's a senior at the University of Texas Arlington, softball player, 22 years old. And Leslie's my sister. So the three of us start talking. And what has happened is that, Les, uh, that Laura uh, was what all of a sudden couldn't get the fork to go from the plate to her mouth, and she didn't, couldn't write her name. And so a teammate's mom took her to the emergency room, and they did all these tests and did MRIs, and, and the doctor came in and said, well, it's not great news. There's something on your MRI on their brain. There's a spot. We're not sure what it is, and we're not exactly sure what's happening with you. And my sister Leslie obviously is broken up by this, Next morning, she and her husband fly to Texas to be with Laura, and what it comes back on, and it's actually the best of news it could have been, but my 22-year-old niece had a stroke. 22, had a stroke. And it's just one of those things you never expect. It's one of those phone calls you never want to get, right? And, and so my, my point starting out today, this first line, is that sometimes life is just grueling. You, you don't know what to expect next. You know, we've been in a pandemic um, for two years. We've got a war going on in Europe. We've got economic difficulties that people are struggling with. And it just feels like life can be so hard sometimes. And then you get a call like my sister did about her daughter and all that, and then it just becomes grueling. How do I keep getting through this? So uh, she's okay. She is, uh, Laura's, well, she'll be, she's on uh, medications and all that stuff, but she's 22. Her life's going to be very different than she thought it was going to be, probably. So what we're going to do today is I want to take a look at King David's life and a season in his life which was grueling is the only way I can describe it. You might remember that David was anointed at a really young age to be the king of Israel. And yet, for probably close to 15 years, Saul continued to be king. And for much of that time, Saul 
wanted to destroy, wanted to kill David. And so we, we'll pick this up. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapters 21, 22, 23. I'm just going to walk us through it. We're not going to look at it very closely. But, but what happens is David is on the run. Okay, And a lot of times I feel life can feel like we're on the run. David is being chased by Saul. Saul wants to get rid of him. So David is, first thing he does is he goes to this little town, this little city called Noab. Noab. And in there he goes to the, the temple that's there and he goes to Ahimelech, who's the priest. And he says to the priest, hey, uh, do you have any supplies? And the priest goes, what, you're here by yourself? Where are all your men? He goes, oh, they're going to meet me later. David is not being truthful to this priest. He says, hey, do you have any supplies, anything I can have? He says, well, I got five loaves of bread. You can have those. Okay, you got any weapons? Well, we got Goliath's sword. They had Goliath's sword at this place. You can take that. He goes, okay, great. And he goes, but what's going on here? Oh, it's okay. The, the king has me on a secret mission. So he doesn't tell the priest really what's going on. But the priest gives him a blessing and says, go on your way. And then what happens a little bit later, we find out in the story, is that Saul hears that the priest has helped David. He calls the priest and all of the priests of that, set, of that town, 85 of them, and says, hey, why'd you help David? He goes, I didn't know David was running from you. He never said anything. I help David all the time. All the... He goes, it doesn't matter. And he kills all 85 priests. One escapes, the son of Ahimelech. And he goes to David, tells him what's happened, and this is what David says. In 1 Samuel 22, 22, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Can you imagine what he experienced? Feeling like you, your actions not telling the truth, caused all this family to be destroyed. And that's what David has to go through, the shame he has to feel in that. But he leaves Nob, and then he goes to the city called Gath. And everybody in Gath knows who he is. They go, that's David. He's the anointed king. And for whatever reason, David is nervous and knows that they will probably try and get, uh, tell Saul he's there. So he, this is true, starts acting like he's insane. Can you imagine that? The man of God in order to, to kind of deal with what's going on, starts acting like he's insane. It says he's scratching on the doors and, the, and all the, everything. He starts drooling down his beard, acting like he's crazy. I mean, I, I just would look back and I go, how embarrassing would that be? That, that you are the king, anointed king, and you're acting like you're insane. So then he leaves there and he goes into the cave of Adullam. And there he's met by 400 men. He's met there by his family and his brothers and 400 men. And what it says about these 400 men is that they were in distress or in debt or discontented. And this is now who he's leading. Are these 400 people that are just not the best of folks. And they're out in this cave together. And then he leaves his parents in this, uh, in, with the king of Moab, and he says, will you watch my father and mother while I find out what God has for me? He's not sure, and he's racing all through the desert. But one thing David is trying to do is here is he's learning to try and discern what is the God's direction in his life. It's a really important life, life lesson that he's learning. 
Lord, show me what you want me to do. So he hears that the Philistines have come in and are, are fighting against the, the people of Kilea. And so he says to the Lord, should I go help these people? And the Lord says, yes. The men that are with David said, are you sure? I don't think we should go up there. That doesn't feel like very safe. And he goes again to the Lord, Lord, are you sure we should go? Yes. So he goes up to Kilea and he fights against the Philistines. This is what we get in, in 1 Samuel 23, 4. Once again, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him. He's learning to listen to what the Lord wants him to do. And he's following the Lord's direction in his life. And sure enough, he goes up there. He defeats the Philistines. He saves this town from them. And then Saul hears that he's in this town. And Saul and his army start to march towards this town. And then he asks the Lord again, is Saul going to attack me here? And the Lord says, yeah, he is. And he says, hey, are the people of this town going to turn me over to him? And he said, the Lord says, yes, they are. That the very people he has just saved are going to turn him over to his enemy. That he will be betrayed by those that he saved. So then David and his 600 men just go off into the desert and start moving from place to place, and they are on the run. And Saul and his army is right behind them all along. He finds, sends out slaves to, or spies to find out where David is. And they find him in the desert of Manon. And literally, David and his men are on one side of the mountain, and Saul and his armies are on the other side of the mountain, and they're all right there. And just as Saul is about to come in and grab David and destroy his men, a messenger comes and says, hey, the Philistines are, are attacking again. This time, Saul and his armies leave. And David and his men are left there in the desert by themselves. Okay, I have a map that kind of shows this a little bit. Let's see this. Do you ever feel like your life looks like that? Like you're just being chased. Just going, it's just grueling. From place to place, that feel like you're, you're just, people are after you all the time. That you've maybe deeply hurt somebody at some place and there's nothing you can do about it. You're embarrassed by something that you've done in the past. You've, you've tried to do the right thing, but you were betrayed by others. You feel like you're just one step ahead of for whatever it is that's chasing you. That, that this is how, what life can feel like sometimes. And I think for a lot of us, it's felt this way for a couple of years. And then the last verse of chapter 23 says this. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Take a deep breath. En Gedi. Here's what one uh, writer says about En Gedi. En Gedi was an oasis in the desert wilderness, where there were freshwater springs and waterfalls, lush vegetation, and countless caves in the rocky limestone cliffs high above the Dead Sea. It's an oasis. It's a, it's a garden, a, a refuge, a stronghold. It's a place where David and his men can rest. It's what they needed at this time. I mean, we don't know how long Saul was gone. It, it, we believe it was for a, quite a, a season of, of months, even years possibly, off fighting the, 
Philistines. You see, see that, that map I showed you, that was about four years of David's life, of chasing and running and all that, and then finally finding En Gedi, a place of renewal, a safe harbor for him and his men. You see, the Lord uses our struggles and he uses times of rest in our lives. And we'll have both. And we need to have both, that seems like. It's really interesting. If you go through the Psalms, about 70% of them have some type of a title. Might just be a one-word title. Some of them are pretty, uh, have longer titles describing when this Psalm might have been written. It probably wasn't originally in the Psalms, but they were put in there by people that studied the Psalms. And it's, it's all a part of, we believe, what God is doing. Like Psalm, Psalm 18 says this as kind of the title. It says, for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord these wor- the words of this song when the Lord, Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You see, when he's in En Gedi, David has time to write. When he's rushing around from place to place, he's experiencing God. He's experiencing the pressure of life. He's experiencing that life is grueling. But when he has time to sit, he can write. And this is what he writes. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my refuge and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. That, that Lord, you're my strength, you're a fortress, you're a deliverer. I, I take refuge in you. You see, this is, this is what En Gedi is like. These are what these places of refuge are in our lives. There's places where we can experience the Lord as a deliverer and a, as a strength. So many of the Psalms talk about the Lord this way. So many of them came out of this experience that David was ha- or that David was having, of being chased, of not knowing what's happening next. Psalms 54, 55, 56, 57 are all in the same vein. Psalm 57 says this. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to the God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. Shelah, God sends his love and his faithfulness. That word, um, Shela, that's in there, they really don't know exactly what it means in the Psalms, but the one, the, what I like that people say is it means just a, a pause. Stop for a moment. Reflect on what you've just read. Reflect on what you've just experienced. And, and we all need an En and David and his men did. And, and what happens is that it, it's when we realize that we have reached our limits. Do you know you have limits? We like to live like we don't. 
But as created human beings, we have limits. And oftentimes we hit those limits. And it's oftentimes when life is grueling and difficult. And, and we realize that, that this phrase that I've heard a pastor say often recently is that I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. That, that we can't do this on our own. So each of us, I believe, need to have a place of refuge. And then Getty, if you would. And just as I kind of wrap it up here, I just want you to think about three different ways that you can find refuge in the Lord. And the first one is a place. That's why vacations are so good. Right? That's part of what it is, is you get out of your just normal everyday stuff, you get into a beautiful place, and you experience God's creation. And that's why it's so important to get away it's why we have parks. It's why we have trails. It's why we have botanical gardens. It's all these things that they are sacred spaces where you can interact with God. They can actually be places of refuge for us. You might have this in your home. You might have a place in your apartment or your house that's kind of set apart, and this is where you spend your time with God. But I would encourage you to find a way to be in God's creation and allow that to be a refuge that meets you where you are at. It's part of what it means to have an Engedi. The second part of having a refuge, I believe, is people. It's the church. It's what we're supposed to be. Is that we are supposed to be a refuge for one another. So uh, just as the pandemic was happening, a few months into it, uh, Ken and I were having our, we had a weekly meeting. We're meeting outside by the cross out there within the amphitheater. We come walking back from there, and we walk into the courtyard here, and we find uh, Yose, who is part of our church, with Karen Beckler and with Jenny Wood. And Yose is, is obviously heartbroken. And what has happened is that Yose... Um, who's from the Netherlands, you may have known her, she just moved back there actually, had found out that she had um, breast cancer. And at the same time, she found out that um, her husband, who she'd been married to for a few years, and it was an interesting relationship, he was still in San Francisco, she was here, but had told her that he wanted nothing more to do with her as she's going through breast cancer. And it's a beautiful picture of Yose sitting with two friends who are, can be a refuge for her. And in fact, their whole core group came around Yose and acted as a refuge, a stronghold, a rock for her when she needed it. And, and this is what the church is supposed to be. Church is not a building. It's not a service on Sunday. It is a group of people who can be a refuge for one another when life gets difficult? It's why we need each other. It's part of God's plan. It's part of the way that he is a refuge for us is through his people. So if you, if you don't have that, figure out how to find that out. Get a part, get connected with a group. Be with others that can support and encourage you because that's so crucial and it's part of 
the refuge that God has for us. And then, and then kind of the final part of a refuge today is, is practice. And it's a Sabbath rhythm of life. You know, when you read in the beginning of, of Genesis chapter 1, you know, it says, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there was uh, evening and morning the first day, and then there was the second day, and the third day, and then on the sixth day, he creates uh, humankind, and he says, it says again that there was uh, evening and morning the sixth day. And then the seventh day, it says God rests. And I thought, always thought it was so interesting that the, the first thing that happens after people are created is they rest. Like, they haven't done anything yet. It's like, you, you're, you're not, they're, you're, you're not, they're not tired. It's not like it's just, hey, oh boy, we just really, no, they hadn't done anything yet. But God says, no, it's time to rest. And there is a, a cycle, there is a, a rhythm that is put into life here that, yes, you, we work for six days, but we have a day of rest. And it's crucial. God wasn't tired. It's, it's, he, knows that, he knows us, and he knows that as broken people, we typically will try to find our identity in our busyness. And God says, no, that's not where you find your identity. You find your identity in me. And so there's kind of three purposes of keeping a Sabbath. The first is just physical rest. Our bodies never meant to go all the time, and we need to make sure we rest physically to be good stewards of what God has given us, to be physically rested. The second thing that happens in the Sabbath is that you have a deeper connection with those that you love, with other people. The typical Jewish Sabbath would begin on Friday night. At sundown, the family would gather. They would eat a meal together. They would light a candle and talk as a family. In the busyness of our days, so many of our meals are taken before the TV, from rush from thing to thing to thing. It's far, we hardly ever have a time where you sit down, but the Sabbath was an opportunity to go deeper and to develop richer relationships with those that you love. And then the final reason of the Sabbath was to grow our relationship in the Lord and depending on him and deepening our love for him, increasing our faith and our trust in him. The main purpose of a Sabbath is to do work in my own soul. And here's the thing. You can do this. You can take 24 hours to have a time where you focus on taking care of your, your body, taking care of relationships, and taking care of your relationship with God. Nobody is telling you not to. Well, no, actually, everybody is telling you not to. All the youth sports, everything out there is telling you that you shouldn't do this. But God is saying, no, you can do this. You can be intentional about how you plan out your week so that you take care of your body, relationships, and your time with me. And we can do that. And it will become a place of refuge for you. It will become a, um, a place where you, you can hardly wait for a Sabbath. Let 
So these last two years have been exhausting. Let's just admit it. And whether we realize it or not, we are, um, there's parts of us that are empty. And there's parts of our lives that have felt like that map of David running around the desert. And so as your pastor, I give you full permission to find an Engedi, to find a place to rest, to find a group of people to rest with, and to find a schedule to where you can find rest. And out of that, I believe you'll experience the Lord. I believe you will see him meet you in this. There really is no reason not to find a place of refuge in our day. Find the place, find the people, and then the practice so that God can truly meet you in this time. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord, um, life is grueling sometimes, and we have experienced that in our own lives and in our world. And so my prayer is that we would take you up on your offer to be a refuge, to be a stronghold, to be a rock, and to be that place of rest in our lives. Meet us, Lord. Meet us, Lord, as we step into this. Give us a place. Give us people. And give us the courage to schedule our lives in a way where it makes sense. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Baseline Community Church, please go to BaselineCC.com.